y'all memorize your, your verse today, this week? It's kind of, was it two verses long? It's kind of long. Um, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So if y'all would help me in memorizing the scripture. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good noise of great joy. It will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for our kids, Lord, as they learn more about uh, the birth of Christ, as they learn, Lord, that the Savior of the world has come in the form of a, of, a, of a baby in a manger, Lord. I want to pray, Lord, that they would learn that the Savior saves them from their sin. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for our teachers as well, as they teach them and as they continue just to teach these children the gospel, Lord, I pray that these children would believe and trust in Christ Jesus for their, for their salvation. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray that you bring more children into our ministry, Lord, to continue to share about the great and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, our catechism question is catechism, uh, question 65. Uh, and the, I'm going to read the question if you would read the answer with me. Which day of the seven has God of the world and the Sabbath? From the creation of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is a Christian Sabbath. Our passage today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Probably are very familiar with this chapter of Scripture. Exodus, chapter 3. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at the remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. Know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the, ter the territory of the Canaanites, Hethelites, Amorites, the Preziasites, the Hevites, and the Debusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore I go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." And Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will be certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to Israel, the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt, the land of the Canaanites, Hethiotites, the Amorites, the Pesiotites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say, and then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19. However, I know the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. When I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my miracles that I will perform in it, after, the, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians, that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor, and, my woman, and any woman saying in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, so that you will plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, I pray that you would show us, this Christmas, Lord, this Advent season, uh, Lord, you would remind us the, the true reason for Christmas, Lord. You would show us, Lord, that, that Christmas is about Christ Jesus, Lord, that he has come into the world to save sinners. May you remind us of, of, of that this morning, Lord. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us. We pray for members who are back home and who are traveling, who are sick or going through other situations. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, we pray for uh, Pleasant Valley uh, Church down in Owensboro, Lord. We pray for their, for their elders, Lord. We pray for Jameis, their lead pastor, Lord. We pray for him this, this Christmas season, Lord, as he is going through a few different things, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be connected to that church. Lord, we pray for our, our fellow sister churches in Evansville. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this Christmas season, Lord, that they preach the gospel faithfully, Lord. May people come to know Christ, Lord, this, this season, Lord, as they come to Christmas uh, uh, services or Christmas Eve services, Lord, or other programs. May the gospel be preached, Lord, and may people believe it and trust it, Lord. We pray for those who are hosting Christmas parties in their homes, but as, as co-workers and, and family and friends come to their home, Lord. But I pray that the gospel would be proclaimed, that people would share the gospel with those in their home, that they would teach people what the true meaning of Christmas is. Lord, I pray for for Redeemer, Lord, even this week as we go to the nursing home and do Christmas carols, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be a blessing to the residents there. For those residents who are not believers, who have never trusted in Christ, Lord, may they be drawn to you, Lord, in their last few years in this life, Lord, may you save them and may you, uh, may they believe in the gospel, Lord. Lord, we praise you, we love you, pray that you would teach us through your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jesus being the true and better Moses. Last week we talked about Jesus being the true and better Abraham. 
And the week before that, we talked about Jesus being the true and better Adam. And again, if you could take a lot of, if you could top five best, <laughs> most important passages in the Bible, uh, Exodus 3 would definitely be on that list. It's a very important chapter in the Bible. Um, and obviously we're being introduced to the Exodus story about God saving his people from slavery in Egypt and using Moses to be the advocate to saving the Israelites from their slavery. And I think it's an important theme here that we learn is that God is not just the creator and sustainer, but he is the personal God. Uh, we had, there's a, a Muslim student that uh, me and Ditton got to know towards the end of the semester, and we got to have the student into our home for Thanksgiving, and then he also came over to our home for dinner before he left to go back to Pakistan. And we were talking about, uh, me and Lisa were talking to him about Christ, and we were sharing the gospel with him after dinner was over. And I asked him the question, do you believe God is a personal God? And he said, no, I don't believe God is personal. And that is an interesting, you know, that's a huge question of kind of the main difference between Christians and Muslims is this God is personal. What we get here in Exodus 3 is that God is very personal, right? We learned that in this chapter, that God has a personal nature. He's not just uh, the, 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 the old man in the sky who created the world and then lets the world just kind of run to itself. That God is involved in his creation. Um, there was a study done by Christian Smith at the University of North Carolina, and basically the question was, what is the American religion? They found out, amongst, especially amongst teenagers, uh, asking questions and doing study amongst American teenagers who claim to be Christian, they found that the, uh, the, really the, the, the largest religion in the United States was not Christianity, but it was something he would, that they phrased moral the therapeutic deism. That people believed in God, but they believed that really the most important thing was your own happiness and actually achieving that happiness. This is how Christian Smith uh, has five points about moral the therapeutic deism. He said, he believes that God exists, he created and ordered the world, and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible by, and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy. To feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. This is basically what they discovered in their study. This is what people who claim to be Christians, this is kind of their worldview. They believe that God exists and God created, but that God really all they, God wants for us is our own happiness. And that we're just good people. And that good people go to heaven. This is a, kind of a quote that, that, that's a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible at work, on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. Being nice is kind of the, the main point. It's not to worship God. It's not to be obedient to his word. But the most important thing is just being nice and being good. He also says, is it about belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affair. Especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved, most of the time the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. Basically, you could be a part of the church, you could be a Christian, you could celebrate Christmas, and actually not even believe in Christianity. 
This is what you believe. You believe that God created you, but it set this moral order, and then all you have to do is be good. That's all that means to be a follower of God. You never really have to leave the church. You never have to leave Christianity. This is a significant part of Christianity. You never have to leave the congregation, the Christian identification. Individualism, self-improvement, is the one great moral imperative in which all are accountable. The highest inspiration is happiness, security, and the meaning of your life. Which I want to get into the Christmas Carol, the movie, or the book. And hence why I, I kind of titled this sermon, Did Scrooge Get Saved? <coughs> did Scrooge, at the end of Christmas Carol, did he become a Christian? We tend to believe that the Christmas Carol is a Christian story. When we watch it maybe every year, I, my favorite is the Muppet Christmas Carol. It's my favorite Christmas Carol. Uh, I'm not sure what your favorite Christmas carol but there's always a new one coming out just about every year, right? A new take on a Christmas carol. The interesting about the Christmas carol is it's always kind of, there was actually a movie a few years ago that was entitled The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it was about Charles Dickens, as if Charles Dickens really is the founder of modern Christmas, or what, how we think of Christmas today in the American world. And the idea in the Christmas carol is that Scrooge is redeemed not through his belief in Jesus Christ, but by what? Kind of social gospel. Helping the poor, the true spirit of Christmas. Right? He captures the true spirit of Christmas, which is not about Christ Jesus. It's not about the baby in the manger. It's about what? Doing good to others. A Christmas carol serves as simply a template for many future commercial films about Christmas, in which a central character, a dry and happy soul, is delivered from his or her misery by a mysterious force known as the spirit of Christmas. I was thinking, like me and Lisa were talking about, what other movies from Christmas are basically based off of Christmas Carol? I was thinking of the Christmas of the Cranks. It's kind of a similar story, right? Because Tim Allen's character really doesn't want to celebrate Christmas this year. He wants to go on a vacation. And it's all about him losing the He's basically rejected the spirit of Christmas, which is about charity, which is about bringing people together, about decorating your home, and this type of thing. But Christmas is much more than a simple discovering goodism. And basically, I, I said that because, again, God is a personal God. And, and Christmas is not about just doing good and finding what your happiness is and being nice. But Christmas is about God coming into the world to save sinners, to redeem. So it's really the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of emancipation, not a spirit of goodism. Kind of, that's kind of the big idea of the sermon is that the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of emancipation, a spirit of freedom. Let me present a little bit of the context of Exodus chapter 3. At this time, before we get to Exodus chapter 3, you remember, and if you know your, your Genesis history, you know that Jacob and his family moved to Egypt because uh, Jacob's youngest, one of his youngest sons, Joseph, is basically the prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command. And so he brings, there's a famine in Cana, and so he brings all of his family, which is about 70 people, to Egypt, to Goshen region of Egypt. They live in the area for a long period of time. They, they flourish pretty well there. They grow in population. Well, at that time, an outside, basically an outside force, had conquered Egypt before Joseph was on the scene. And so really there was an outside force, a non-Egyptian who was ruling in, in, in Egypt when he appointed Joseph to be his prime minister. Well, some time goes by, there's a rebellion in Egypt, 
and uh, kind of a, they, they push out the outsiders, and, and kind of a new Egyptian dynasty is, is started, that are, which is Egyptian. And they see all these Israelites, these, these Hebrews, this, these foreign people, and they're fearful of them. And they grow, they've grown in population, and so they want to, they, they're afraid of these, these, these foreign force, and so they want to, to enslave them. And so this, it says in Exodus chapter 1 that the new Pharaoh had, it didn't know about Joseph. He had forgotten about Joseph. And so there's this, this fear of foreigners. And there was no sympathy for, for foreigners who served as Egypt's prime minister during the reign of one of the enemy's pharaohs. So Israel was, a, was foreigners in a country whose government hated foreigners. Basically, domestic, it was a domestic issue. It was a politically popular position in Egypt at that time to enslave the Israelites, to enslave the Hebrews. So they impressed, they impressed the Hebrews with slave labor. And basically the point was, was to try to kill them off. So they, if they enforced like, slavery on them, they would work them to death. By working them so much, it would create a low maternity rate, so there would be less children being born. And there would be, there would be mal malnutrition. They would be sick. They wouldn't be fed well. And so they would die of starvation. This was the hope. They would basically kill them off with slave labor. But what happens? They were oppressed, and they grew in population. The more they were oppressed, the more they grew. Basically, and then they created this abortion policy. They were going to kill any male child that was born uh, a Hebrew. And uh, even that didn't work. They continued to grow. God was continually to be good to them and sustain them through their misery. And they, they were given difficult labor. They cried out to God, and God heard their groaning. And so we get to chapter 3, and Moses is now come on the scene, and we know a little bit about Moses. And Moses is now in Midian. He is a shepherd of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he's, in, he's taken his, his sheep, and they've been grazing pretty far from Midian to this mountain called Mount Carberry. And, we, and, we, and they go to this mountain, and, God, and Moses sees this burning bush. So, the first point here is that God observed our misery. God observed our misery. So, it sees that. So, Moses has, has gone to this burning bush. He's curious about this burning bush, this bush that's burning but yet not being consumed. And so, he goes over to look at it. What is, why isn't the burning bush burning up? And the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, Here I am. He answered. He says, do not come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet to the place where you're standing is holy ground. Remove your sandals. The Lord appears to him in the flame of fire within a bush. He says, Moses, Moses. God has affection on Moses. He says, remove your sandals from the place where you're standing is holy ground. We know that Moses is in the presence of God. He wouldn't be taking off his shoes to some angel or some, some person who is equal to him. We're talking about someone who's superior to Moses. This is God. And he tells him to take off his sandals before he's in the presence of God. You think about uh, the Queen of England. You know, if you ever go see the Queen of England, uh, males have to bow, right? You have to, like, bow your neck to the Queen. If you're a woman, you have to curtsy to the queen. Basically, the point is, regardless of who you are, if you're the president of the United States, if you're the prime minister of Britain, you're in the presence of someone who is superior to you. And so you have to bow. So in this sense, Moses has to take off his sandals because he's in the presence of someone who is superior to him. He's in the presence of God. This is the God of, the, of, the, of, Abraham, of Moses' father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Basically, Moses has a Hebrew identity. He's the offspring of God's promise to Abraham. That Moses is a part of the offspring, a part of the promise of Abraham. This is one who he is talking to. The opportunity to know the God of Abraham. To know Yahweh. To know the God of his fathers. And what, is, what does God say here? He says in, in verse Verse 7, the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. He observed the misery of his people in Egypt. He's heard them crying out because of their oppressors. He knows their suffering. He's been carefully watching. God is not some deistic God who created and then lets the world just run as it is. He is involved. He is observing the misery and the slavery of his people. He knows. He's heard their crying. He's heard their groaning. He's carefully watched them. God's cared about his people. He's always cared about them. He's sustained them. He's continued to help them multiply. He's been concerned for them. I mean, this is not a big surprise. He told Abraham this was going to happen. He told Abraham in Genesis 15 that this was going to happen, that they were going to be taken into a foreign land. They were going to be aliens in a foreign land, and they were going to be slaves for 400 years. We knew this was going to happen. He did this for a reason. He promised that he would sustain them through it and bless them with many possessions at the end of it. We find out at the end of the story that he does bless them with a lot of possessions because they were enslaved for 400 years. They grew and multiplied to a large group of people and a large nation during their time in Egypt. And he heard them crying out. God personally heard their groaning. He's not a God who created the world, left it alone. He knows. He is concerned. Like a father who hears his children's cries at night when they have a nightmare. Like a mother who hears her children's cries when they've hurt themselves from a fall. He knows them. He's been always caring about them. It's not like God was not involved for 400 years. He's like, I'm involved with you. I'm not helping you. That's why you're enslaved. This was all a part of God's plan. And I bring this up because it, it does kind of set the stage for the coming of Christ. We see in, in, in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah gives this, this kind of uh, prophecy in Luke chapter 1, after John the Baptist has been born, uh, Zechariah basically recognizes the importance of this event. And he talks about basically in similar language that we see in Exodus chapter 3, this this great exodus, this greater exodus that's actually come about. He says in verse 68, He said, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. The angel of the Lord visited Zacharias in 112, right? The Holy Spirit, was, there's the, uh, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is being the promise of John the Baptist. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is in verse 15 and 17 of Luke chapter 1. That the God has now visited his people. He's appeared to his people. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and then goes and visits Mary and promises her that she will be the mother of the Lord. And Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God has clearly visited his people again. Well, the years between Malachi and John the Baptist was 400 years, basically between the last prophet of Israel and the time of John the Baptist's birth. It was 400 years of silence. But God, God has now appeared to his people again. He has visited his people again. He's observed their pain. He's observed their misery, and he has visited his people. At the time when Jesus is born, before Jesus was born, Israel was a very small nation. It was a very insignificant nation. They had basically been traded from one power to the other. There was the Greek Empire and the Alexander the Great that conquered Israel and Palestine, and basically turned the entire nation into a Greek nation. And there was a time when they were in, 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 in uh, 65 BC when they were taken over by the Roman Empire. Israel was groaning during the time of Jesus' birth. They were under a lot of misery, and they were conflicted, and they were persecuted for their faith and their belief. And in a sense, they were in a similar situation where we see in Egypt. They were oppressed. And God visits his people. He visits them once again, his people and their suffering. He has seen their suffering. He's concerned with their misery. He's come to bring relief. But he will rescue his people from a greater power than simply the Egyptian or the Roman Empire. Not just the Roman Empire. He has visited us in our misery against a more ancient foe, a far more ancient foe. And that's what Zacharias is talking about in Luke chapter 1. That, that, that the greater enemy is not the Roman Empire. It's not the Greek Empire. The greater ancient foe is Satan and sin and death. We see in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, that a great war has been ushered in, a great hostility between the woman and the serpent. And this has been echoed throughout history that Cain attacked his brother, sin's desire is to rule over you. The pharaohs and the Israelites, Goliath cutting off, and David cutting off his head, that sin and death and Satan have brought hostility, and there is no relief. That is the great misery, that is the great enemy, is sin and death. And Zechariah notices this and says, salvation has come. Salvation has come. God has visited the people again. He's appeared to us, and he's bringing salvation from our enemies. That God has visited us in our misery, and he brings relief. He brings rest. The second point is, is that God raised up an advocate. So, God observes our misery, and God raises up an advocate. Going back to Exodus 3, God tells Moses in verse 8, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Basically, the way he's come down, and he said the word here is to bring them out. Another way you can look at this, another way you can kind of translate this, is that he basically snatched them away. He took them out. He snatched them away. They were in Egypt. They were being enslaved, and God snatches them out. And when we get snatching, that's not something you just passively do, right? You do it with violence. There's a, there's a uh, force that's being ushered in. The strong arms of God are snatching them up out of Egypt. There's a story I was reading this week um, about a, a mother, her name was uh, Chelsea Camp, and there was a, a pit bull that I guess that they were uh, they were, they were um, dog watching, uh, pet watching this for this family, and she had a small daughter named Mackenzie, and the dog attacked. Her. 
the girl, and they bit her pretty bad. And, it's, and the story goes that the mom, seeing that her child is being attacked by this pit bull, literally goes up to the dog and starts punching the dog. And no joke, bites the ear off of the dog. The mom went crazy and just starts punching to get the, the dog off her child. She successfully did get the dog off her child and basically saved the child's life by her violent reaction. And it made me think of a similar way that the God saved the Israelites. He snatches them out and punches the Egyptians and bites their ear off and snatches them and carries them out of Egypt. God snatches them out of oppression into freedom and plenty. He says to Moses, therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God has chosen to send Moses to be Israelites, Israel's advocate before Pharaoh to proclaim freedom to the captives. Moses is a bit surprised by the call. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You have to kind of think of yourself here, where Moses is. He's not some great man. He's not some great politician. He's not some great warrior. He's basically a shepherd for his father. He's not even his own man. He's not even watching his own sheep. He's watching his father-in-law's sheep. That's why he says, who am I? You're telling me that I should go to Egypt, which at that time was a world power, one of the few world powers in that world, and I'm going to tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who considers himself a god, that he should let Israelites, the Israelites go. But what does God say? He promised to be with him. He promised that he will guide them. He promises that he will give his authority to Moses to accomplish this work. But God also provided a sign of the fulfillment of his promise. Basically, you'll know that you have fulfilled what I have commanded you, what I have called you to, because the people will come to this mountain that you're on and worship me at Mount Sinai. Or Mount Sinai. They will worship there by all the people. There's an advent, a call, and a promise. There's a, a, an adoption by God, that, that, that faith in God's promise, that have trust in me, that I will sustain you, I will bring you out of Egypt, and I will bring you back to this mountain. And you will worship me. That your entire, the entire people will worship me. Again, this is so interesting compared to what Zacharias is saying in Luke chapter 1. Talking about another exodus. A greater exodus. He says that God has visited his people. And he's provided redemption for his people. In chapter 1 verse 69 of Luke. For he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of the servant David. Just as he spoke with the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of who hates us. God has raised up a savior, an advocate, to snatch us out of slavery to sin and death, the greater enemy, the ancient foe, to bring us out into the open, to restore us to himself, to give us plenty as his children. He does this through a new deliverer, a true and better deliverer. Why? Because the enemy is greater. And the Exodus is more, more expansive. The one who is the beloved Son of God is the new deliverer. He is the true and better Moses. He snatches us out of our slavery to sin and death and violence. The crucifixion is similar to the Exodus, isn't it? The ten plagues is violence. The plagues that you see in Exodus. What do you see at the crucifixion? You see darkness. You see the Passover. It happens. Christ's crucifixion happens during the time of the Passover. Same time as when the Exodus happens, during the time of 
where the Passover is 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 actually um, um, given as a as something that the people of Israel should 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 practice, but also as a way to to save the people from the angel of death. What happens during the Passover? There's a slaughter at twilight. The unblemished animal, the spread blood of the animal on the door, the angel of death passes over. And the death of the firstborn male, the beloved son of Pharaoh, is killed during the Exodus. This is actually, this particular plague is the one that causes Pharaoh to say, go, leave. So much similarities between the crucifixion and the Exodus, that there's violence. The violence of the cross is what snatches us out of our slavery. And through this, mercy is shown. God, get our immediate Get our immediate from among our people, both you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord, the Lord as you have said. This is Pharaoh saying to, to Moses, leave, get out immediately, go and worship your God. In the morning, Israel was freed from centuries of misery. After the angel of death passed over, the next morning, Israel was freed from A day had dawned from Israel because of God's deliverance. The day before they were slaves, the day after they were free. In Luke 24, 5-6, on a similar morning, on the third day after Christ's suffering and death on the cross, a new day also dawned. For God had won a greater exodus. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. This is what the angel says to Mary. Immediately, the next morning, when Christ Jesus was risen from the dead, what happened? There was a new exodus. There was a new freedom from slavery that was freedom from sin and death. The enemy has been vanquished. God has snatched his children out of slavery to freedom through his son, who died and has been risen. The first people to experience this true and better exodus at the hands of a true and better Moses is Mary. She sees Jesus, and what does she do? She's celebratory, right? Why? Because a greater exodus has happened. Christ Jesus has conquered sin and death. A better sign is given as the fulfillment of this exodus. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the one that was made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They broke my covenant with them, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. They will be my people, and I shall be their God. No longer shall each one teach his own neighbor or his own brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Basically, it's the same thing that God gave uh, Moses. He said, I'm going to give you a sign of fulfillment. What does he give us? He gives us a similar sign of fulfillment. That the law will be written on the hearts of those who are free. That they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says to the people on the day of Pentecost. You can have the same celebration of departure and exodus from your slavery to sin and death if you will trust in the work of Christ Jesus as your great deliverer. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have been alienated from God and placed under the power of Satan. The scene of brokenness is all around us every day. You just pick up the newspaper, you read the news, there's brokenness everywhere. And what is that from? It's from sin. The groaning under the weight of sin. You see it every day. You see it in people's faces. You talk to people that you work with. They're groaning under the weight of sin. 
It's almost like they're enslaved. It's almost like they're in misery or oppression. As if they need freedom. You can be brought under from underneath the weight of sin. You can be brought out from underneath it. For a Savior has been sent out, raised up to bring you out, to snatch you out, to deliver you, to rescue you. His name is Jesus Christ, and He is a greater deliverer than Moses, for He is, for he is greater and our enemy is greater. If you trust in Christ, you will receive the same Holy Spirit the apostles and others did at Pentecost. The sign of the fulfillment of the new exodus is the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you're free? The Holy Spirit. And that the law of God has been written on your hearts. The third point is that God remembered his promise. God remembered his promise. In verse 14, basically Moses is like, well, what should I tell them? Who sent me? And he says, tell them that I am who I am. What is his name? His name is the one who always is. This is the name of Yahweh. Basically, um, and I don't know this for sure, but what's happened is, is that the name that God was known by, by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had been lost. That Moses obviously didn't know the name Yahweh. And most likely the other people, other Hebrews and Israelites, did not know the name Yahweh. As if over 400 years they had forgotten that name. That he is the creator, the sustainer of all that exists. The name that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew quite well. The one who is active and present always is Yahweh the Lord, who made the covenant with Abraham in the past, that he would be the father of a great nation. He would give his family their own land. God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He fulfilled his promise because he is the I Am, right? He does all that he wills and pleases. Interesting again, Zacharias goes back when he talks in, in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 72 through 74. He says, and to remember the, his old holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. God remembered his promise to establish a greater nation than one simply defined by birth and boundaries, a nation defined by the same faith, Lord, and Spirit. Not just simply a nation between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates and the Jordan River. That's simply a nation that calls themselves Jewish, but a greater nation, a nation from, from, from people from all tongues and from all lands. A greater nation defined by the same faith, Lord, and Spirit. The mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations. But I think Paul says this in Ephesians 3, doesn't he? He says, the great mystery is the greater nation, the nation that all will be redeemed and be saved through Christ. The Gentiles, the members of the same body, and partners of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul called the mystery as God's multifaceted wisdom, that God's eternal purpose is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God remembered his greater promise to establish a people from all nations. That people from everywhere may be saved and delivered from their shared slavery to sin and death. What happens? What are we told in Romans 5? Death spread to all men. Death reigned over all. All were children of wrath. And are united together in God's spirit into one family. You're also invited to come to the mountain of God and to worship Him, to receive the sign of your exodus from sin and death, the sign of the Holy Spirit. That is the sign of the fulfillment. If you trust in Christ, it doesn't matter how much theology you know. If you trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. 
All those who repented and believed at Pentecost received the Holy Spirit. That is the sign of the Exodus. That's the sign of the, of the freedom from slavery, from sin and death. The last point is this. God gave us plunder. Plunder through our deliverance. He says here in verse 19 of Exodus 3 that basically the king will not let you go, but I'm going to do miracles before him, which are the ten plagues, and then that he will let you go. And when they let you go, basically the people of Israel are going to be so afraid of you. Whatever you ask for, they're going to give you. And that included jewelry, gold and silver and clothing. Basically, human power was not going to intimidate Pharaoh. Moses was not going to intimidate Pharaoh. A powerful army wasn't going to unleash his grip over the Israelites easily. There is a story of uh, Michael Jordan. And uh, basically, when Chris Weber played for the uh, Washington Bullets at that time, uh, he got off the bus, and they were walking towards the arena, and Michael Jordan was sitting on the hood of his Ferrari with a cigar in his mouth before the game even started. Basically telling the, basically showing to those guys that, man, we're already celebrating victory already. Like, we're already going to win. They're already celebrating, the, they're already toking the, uh, the cigar, a victory cigar, before the game even starts. God was going to accomplish what he was going to accomplish. He was going to bind the strong man and plunder the house. And when he does this, when he binds the strong man, when he binds the Pharaoh, he plunders his house. And all of those who the Israelites were able to receive favor from the Egyptians, and then when you go, you will not be empty-handed. They're going to be so fearful of you because of God's power manifests and put on full display. The Egyptians will give them all their valuables and their clothing. Everything. All the provisions they were going to need for their journey to the promised land, the Egyptians provided for them. You wouldn't think, though, over 400 years of slavery, most likely the Israelites had very little. Very little clothing, very little materials. Eventually, the Egyptians provided everything they needed for their journey to the promised land. But as, as Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 talks about the greater plunder that will happen, the new Exodus in Christ. He says in 34 through 35, might, they might serve him without fear of holiness and righteousness before him in all their days. That a greater plunder is going to happen. That all the spiritual blessings and heavenly places will be given to those who are in Christ. That all the lavish, that he's going to lavish his grace on his people. That we, who have put our faith in Christ, will be able to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we'll be able to gaze upon his beauty and serve him in peace. This is ours in Christ, that if you trust in Christ, you get all of his plunder and all his spoils. God has opened up his treasure chest and shared his spoils with us. If you put your faith in Christ, you will serve him in holiness and righteousness, as a priest, as sons and daughters of God, as co-heirs. You've been freed from your slavery to sin and death. You believe in Christ. You're no longer a slave to fall back into fear, but you've been adopted through Christ. You've been freed. You have been delivered. So Christmas is about a celebration of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a freedom. It's not just something that we think about to teach us about goodism and how to be charitable to others. For God has accomplished a greater exodus from a greater enemy, through a greater Moses, and provided a greater plunder. The baby in a manger is our Savior. He is our advocate. He is our deliverer. And because of the baby in a manger, we have been freed from sin and death. 
And because of the baby in the manger, we have received all the, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That is, the, that is the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is more than a spirit of goodism. This is a quote from the Christmas Carol. This is uh, Scrooge at the end, when he's basically been redeemed. He says, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me, and I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Christmas is far more than a character lesson on charity and divorce. It is a story of the great invader who delivered humanity from their slavery to sin and death. For God is personal. He's not a God who creates and leaves us alone to learn from our mistakes and become better people. No, God raised up a Savior and He was the Son of God and came and delivered us from our misery. This is what Christmas is about. The spirit of Christmas is a spirit of freedom. The spirit of Christmas is a spirit of emancipation. The spirit of liberty. Christmas is a celebration of a great emancipation. So really, Christmas is something we should celebrate your freedom in Christ. Celebrate your wealth in Christ. That's what Christmas is about. And so when you're talking to people, when you're talking about Christmas and what the meaning of Christmas, don't simply tell them that Christmas is just simply about a baby in a manger. It's far more than that. It's about a great exodus. And if you've received Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you were once slaves to sin and death, and now are free. Free to serve Him in holiness and righteousness. To receive all the, all the pleasures and all the, the joys and all the, the wealth that is given to those who are in God. To celebrate your wealth, celebrate your freedom, celebrate your great emancipation in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to just pray, Lord, that you would help me as well to celebrate this year, celebrate my freedom in Christ, recognize what I would be if I did not have Christ. I'd be groaning under my under the weight of sin. Enslaved and, and bound and, and, and chained, Lord, to my slavery to sin. But in Christ, Lord, we have been free. We've been adopted as sons of, and daughters of God, co heirs of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, Lord, who's never put their faith in Him, never experienced the freedom that is in Christ, and received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that they would call out to you. Lord, they would repent of those sins and believe. And by believing, Lord, they would trust in you and receive your Holy Spirit. And they would experience this great exodus. They would experience this great freedom. They would experience this great liberty and emancipation, Lord. No longer under the weight of sin, but freed from sin, Lord. Freed from death. Lord, if there's anyone here that's a Christian, Lord, but really is just under a lot of weight, Lord, I pray that you would help them to recognize their freedom they have in you. 